0: episode four of the Mercy House University series on Does Prayer Work? And today Elaine is going to be taking us through a slightly different approach. We're going to be doing two episodes like this um, where she's going to be looking at the lives of biblical figures to get a sense of why did they pray the way they did, how do they pray, how are those models for us as we pray, uh, and just giving us that uh, yeah, the more practical understanding of what does prayer actually look like within someone's life, um, and what is the, the role of prayer in over the course of a life. So, um, yeah, I'm excited to turn that over to her and take it away.
1: Okay. So yeah, you guys, um, are really good at asking these like deeper questions and taking an academic approach to asking questions like, does prayer work and stuff like that? And it's not really my strength. Um, I just kind of know the Bible pretty well, and I have a pretty good memory, so I can put things together. Um, so I just figured instead of trying to beat you guys at your game, I would uh, just bring what I am good at. Um, and so, as jo- uh, Austin said, instead of trying to take like this big, um, take the whole Bible and look at what all of what it says about prayer, that I would uh, look at just two individuals and at their lives and how they fit into their times and history and um just get a feel for what their prayer lives were like what we have in the historical record because we're in the, the biblical record because obviously we can't know everything about every prayer they ever prayed um we only know what they wrote down so and I don't write down all my prayers so um <laughs> it's definitely an incomplete picture but it's um what God has given us so um and I chose to do um to focus on Jeremiah the prophet from the Old Testament and the Apostle Paul from the New Testament. And I chose these two guys because I actually (laughs) am kind of obsessed with both of them, to be quite honest. With Jeremiah, for some reason, like every six months or so, I just like read it through two or three times and Mm. get kind of obsessed with the misery of his life and how faithful he was and the quality of his prayers and stuff. So so I'm going to actually focus on Jeremiah today. But the other reason that I was that I've chosen these two guys is that um, there's a lot written by them and about them. So, you know, Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament and he wrote all these letters to the churches. And then Jeremiah wrote the book of Jeremiah, most of it, and the book of Lamentations also. And then we also have, you know, um, third person accounts of their lives in um, both the book of Jeremiah, and Acts, um, Kings, Chronicles, I'm kind of mixing them up. but. Um, You get the idea. So we can know a lot about them from these kind of two perspectives. Um, And then also, there's some pretty strong similarities between the two guys, where both of them experienced a lot of persecutions. Um, You know, they had they were very um, passionate about their ministry and stuff like that. But then, pretty big differences, where Jeremiah had like no friends, almost no fruit in his ministry in his time that he got to see, whereas Paul. Had a lot of friends. He had some support, so even though he was experiencing trouble, he was also getting some of the, you know, like the, the fruit and mm. um, benefit of friendships and mm. things like that. So um, I think it'll be interesting to contrast and compare their their prayer lives and their relationships with God. Um, so yeah, I'm going to start with Jeremiah today.
2: Awesome. Uh, <laughs> can you give us some historical context, like to place Jeremiah yes. first off, because some people. Right. Might not have that right, ready to hand.
1: Yeah, so it's hard to know where to start with that, because if you go all the way back to Genesis, it's complicated. But if we just start with David, King David, during King David and King Solomon's reigns, Israel was in a time where they were thriving and they were wealthy and the kingdom was expanding and stuff. And then after King Solomon, things kind of fall apart, And the nation splits into two, the nation of Israel splits into two. So you get Israel and Judah. Um, And for several generations, both kingdoms go back and forth between kings who are faithful to God and um, keeping the law and kings who are very much not faithful to God. And things just kind of keep getting worse, like the bad kings are worse and worse and worse. And so, uh, yeah, things get really bad and eventually God decides uh, that he's going to raise the Assyrian Empire, and they're going to basically wipe out the northern kis- kingdom of Israel. And then at first he spares Judah, um, where, which is where Jerusalem is, and that's also the uh, kingdom of Judah, and the kings of Judah are descendants of David, so this is fulfilling promises that, he, that God had made to David. Um, and about 100 years after the Assyrians take over Israel, God gets fed up with Judah as well, and he raises up the Babylonian Empire, and they come, and they basically do the same thing to Judah that the Assyrians did to Babylon, except in this case that they take the people into exile, and so there's like a remnant that are eventually going to return. And Jeremiah is called to prophesy to the people of Judah in like the 40 years or so before this conquest happens. So he's at a really dark time, Um In Israel's history Um, and he's prophesying for decades uh, to people who don't listen to him basically at all (laughs) the entire time Um, and something notable from that history is that in that hundred-year period between the fall of Israel and the fall of Judah um, Judah experiences a period of peace um, relatively and and, um, and also some stability and King Manasseh, is, who is like the worst king in the history of Judah, um, he reigns for 55 of the 100 years that Judah is experiencing this peace. Um, and he's super, super bad. He sets up altars to foreign gods, um, and he mandates that the people worship those gods. He, um, he also sets up altars to foreign gods in the temple of God, which is extremely bad. He engages in child sacrifices... Uh, even I think his own children and it's even it's a little unclear in one of the accounts but it's possible that he's even doing some child sacrifice in the temple and so he's he's not only personally unfaithful to God but he's also leading the people astray for decades, 55 years or so and during his reign God makes up his mind to put an end to the nation of Judah to the nation state let's say of Judah um, and it, that's mentioned numerous times in both the book of jeremiah and in king second kings and second chronicles that uh manasseh's evil (laughs) reign was kind of the the straw that broke god's patience (laughs) i guess Um, and so uh the next thing the next king after manasseh is king josiah and he's a good king um really good king actually he he basically implements all these drastic reforms. He destroys all the altars that Manasseh had built. He reinstitutes the Passover. They find the Book of the Law while he's king, and he like gets really serious about um, obeying the laws again. What's one of the
2: craziest stories when they find the Book of the Law? Yeah. They're, like, <clears throat> dust it off. Wait, what is this? <laughs> right, yes, yes.
1: <coughs> <laughs> and so in his in Josiah's twelfth year. He begins these reforms, because I think he's like eight years old when he becomes king, so Mm -hmm. it takes a little while for him to get his feet. Or grow into his feet. (laughs) (laughs) And then in his 13th year, so one year after those reforms begin, that's when Jeremiah is called and he begins prophesying. Which is kind of interesting timing, Mm -hmm. because Jeremiah's message is basically, God is going to bring an end to this, and there's like no turning back. Um, And you would think that the people if they're in this season of returning to God, that they would be open to hearing this message of repentance. But no one ever listens to Jeremiah. <laughs> um, he's not met favorably very often. Um,
0: Just for anyone who's interested, this is happening around the beginning of the... Uh, or the second half of the 6th century BC. Mm-hmm. So the exile is like
1: 590-something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. From the outset, God tells Jeremiah that the people are going to reject his message and that he, God, is not going to turn away from his plan to destroy Judah and Jerusalem. And there's even a couple of places where God even tells Jeremiah not to pray for the people because he's not going to hear the prayers because he's already made up his mind about what he's going to do after the disobedience of King Manasseh.
0: That's some evidence that God answers prayer. Kind of ironically, right? (laughs) Because it suggests that, like, well, ordinarily, God would be inclined to hear their prayers, which presumably means something like actually responding to the prayers, maybe giving them what they pray for once in a while. And it's a special situation here where God is saying, I'm not going to hear their prayers. So that's evidence relevant to, you know, some of the stuff we talked about in earlier episodes. You know, does God, in fact, answer prayers?
2: Yeah, it seems like what God is saying is that the point of a petitionary prayer, in at least in part, is that it can make a difference as to what I'll do, but it's not going to make a difference as to what I'll do right now. Mm-hmm. So don't bother. Yeah. yeah.
1: And so we also know from the text that Jeremiah was quite young when he was called to prophesy to the people. It's um, In the, the story of his calling, he says, don't send me, I'm only a child or something. So if you consider that he was you know, maybe like between 13 and 17 or something when he was called. Um, by the end of the story, he's basically an old man. And so he's been prophesying for about 40 years by the time all this is said and done. And yeah, there's like time stamps, I call them, where it's like in the 17th year of King Josiah, such and such happened. And so he does prophesy at in Josiah's day as well as in Zedekiah's day. And Zedekiah is the last king. So, yeah, I mean, if you consider... This is a place where I always pause, is just thinking about God gave this guy a basically hopeless ministry that in his lifetime he was going to be rejected, and his message was going to be rejected left and right, and he does it for 40-plus years. And then in the end, after everything is said and done, like, everything he's said has come true, and the, the people... this Like, the last scene in the book, basically, is that he... The people who are left in Jerusalem after the Babylonians take over, they send Jeremiah to inquire of God as to whether they should stay in Jerusalem or go to Egypt. And he comes back and he says, we need to stay in Jerusalem. And they're like, God didn't say that, we're going to Egypt. And they take him to Egypt with them. And so even after everything happened, nope, they're still not listening to him. And I don't know, it Just I feel like it's important to let it sink in how arduous and um, miserable that experience would be to be constantly rejected and knowing too that your message is from God and um, it's not good and if people would listen to you things would be good (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, so I just feel like we need to really hold that as we think about how he prays because people kind of make fun of him for whining a lot in his prayers but I think we would all whine a lot if that was our lives so yeah he experiences a lot of uh, persecution and rejection in his life basically there's only two people who are nice to him in the whole book Sucks. and a couple others who are like maybe not so vehemently mean Some less mean. so there's baruch who is his scribe who it's actually not even clear if he's a friend it's, he just is maybe he's an employee or something but <laughs> yeah, he yeah. He writes stuff down and sometimes reads it out for people. And he seems to be relatively faithful. And then there's this, um, I believe it's an Ethiopian guy named Ibn Molek who saves him from the time that he's thrown in a cistern. So these people get mad at him and they throw him in a cistern. and Because um, that's what you do <laughs> right. when you get mad at something. And then this Ethiopian, he's like, that's not right, we need to pull him out. And so he gets permission to pull him out. So that's his two friends... And then there's a couple of other situations where, like, King Zedekiah is... He kind of seems so depressed that he does, it's not, like, worth his time to keep Jeremiah imprisoned anymore, so he lets him roam in the courtyard. So he's still confined, but he's not, like, in prison. That's kind of nice. And then um, there's a situation where some elders argue for not killing him when everyone wants to put him to death. Um, you know, they just make this argument, like, oh, so-and-so hundred years ago prophesied and they didn't kill him. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe we No precedent <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, so not a very, he also doesn't get married um, at God's um, direction. So he doesn't have family. He's rejected left and right. And it's very sad. Um, and then in, per- in terms of persecutions, there's so many where he, like there's one episode where he's, um, has these public showdowns with the, False prophets, where they're like, "This is what the Lord says," and they yes. kind of like are contradicting each other's prophecies and breaking yokes on each other's heads and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> not, not exactly, but um, <laughs> what do they call that? They're like acting out the prophecies, or like, "This is what the Lord says is going to break the yoke of the pe- of the Babylonians in two years." And Jeremiah's like, "Well, I think it's going to be 70. <laughs> and then there's another situation where one king, so he has. God asks Jeremiah to have Baruch write down all these prophecies on a scroll, and then Baruch reads them at the temple, and then it's brought to the king's attention that these prophecies have been written and read, and the king takes, as the scroll is being read to him, he takes, cuts each column off and throws it in the fire. He's imprisoned after being accused of being a traitor, because he's like going off to visit a field that he has to buy, and somebody thinks he's... Um, basically defecting to the Babylonians, and they put him in prison after that. He's thrown into a cistern, I think in that same episode a little while later, while he's confined. Um, And then, as I said before, after everything is said and done, they drag him off to Egypt um, while rejecting the word of the Lord that he's bringing back to them. Um,
2: This is how his wife starts to look like Paul. Prison, rejecting his preaching, and trouble with water. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there
1: you go. So yeah, that's kind of the context and mm-hmm. him. Uh,
0: so can tell us about his relationship with God.
1: Yeah. So it's interesting to think about this because he, um, he's a prophet, right? So he's hearing from God regularly. And it, there are situations where it seems like God is almost treating Jeremiah like a confidant. Like, he's, God is heartbroken about the um, unfaithfulness of his people. And he's, kinda, he's coming and just like laying his heart at Jeremiah's feet and being like, Oh, I did all this for them, but they don't think of me. They turn their backs to me and not their faces and um, how unfaithful they've been. And he's, he, I get the impression that God is very sorrowful in this book. Um, And so you think about if you're God's, if you're listening to God and he's telling you these things, that's a very unique kind of relationship that you would have. So I feel like Jeremiah knows God in a really special way. Simultaneously, God is very terrifying because he's speaking all this judgment and um, planning this punishment for the people. But at the same time, he's a healer and a comforter and he's got this tenderness of, you know, his own kind of broken heart, if you want to call it that. Um, So yeah, Jeremiah just has a really interesting perspective on God's character and his heart and stuff. Um, And then as far as the prayers that Jeremiah has written, you see a lot of kind of psalm-esque praises and uh, poetic uh, laments and stuff. They, they They really do resemble the psalms in a lot of ways where he's praising God and then asking for vengeance or something. Um, And then there's also these really deep laments that he writes about, you know, the the suffering of the people. And I really see Jeremiah's prayers as being super open and honest. They're very poetic, Uh, a lot of metaphor in there. Um, And there's even places where he kind of seems to be lashing out at God a little bit, where he, he kind of, there's a couple of places where he says, you have deceived this people or you have deceived me. And it's like, I don't think he really thinks God is deceiving him, but he's like, just saying what's on his heart and yeah. <laughs> what he's feeling. He's you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah, so he's just bringing his frustrations and pain to God, and he's also seeking comfort from God. So there seems to be this knowledge that God is both like the afflictor and the comforter. So he seems to be able to hold those two things, and they're, they're not contradictory to him. And the other thing is that he doesn't just carry his own pain to God. Um, he also carries the pain of the people, his, his prayers are full of grief over the destruction of the people. And even though the people have rejected Jeremiah all these years, he doesn't quite ever reject them fully. You know, he's, um, he's grieving their downfall. And he comes to God with, with that uh, lament as well. And actually, there's, in chapter 9, he says, I just love this metaphor. when He says, Oh, that my head were a spring of water, and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. And, you know, I just... We're going to talk about Paul the next time in another episode. Um, And, you like, Paul's prayers are very logical and theological, and there's a lot of, like, so that... I pray this, so that, this. Um, But Jeremiah is just like, I don't have enough tears in my head to cry out all my grief. I wish my head was a spring of water. And, I don't know, to me, that's just really powerful, and um, I think we can learn a lot from just the honesty that he brings to that, bringing these kinds of things to God. And that's actually another note, is that Jeremiah was really gifted at grieving, just like in expressing grief and in being in it and bringing it to God. Um, and there's a place in Sene- Second Chronicles that says that he... So after King Josiah died, that's the, the king who was... The king while Jeremiah was called prophesy Um, when King Josiah died Jeremiah wrote a lament for him and that the people continued to sing that lament for many years Hmm. and it caught my attention when I read that because it's just interesting to think that like God is going to send a prophet to the people in the decades ahead of their destruction and he knows the message is going to be rejected he knows the people aren't going to respond so who better to send than somebody who's good at grieving, mm-hmm. you know. And then, and then you look at the result of that, where you have the Book of Jeremiah, which has these beautiful metaphorical um, laments and prayers. And then you've also got the Book of Lamentations that he, um, scholars agree that Jeremiah wrote. It doesn't say specifically in the text, but um, and so the, the exiles who are grieving the loss of their nation and they're living in the darkness that they their nation kind of created for itself. Um, They have these books that Jeremiah wrote, um, which is really, to me, just super fascinating. That uh, Yeah, who better to send at that particular time in history?
2: And a lamentation or or like a grieving prayer is a kind of prayer that we haven't really talked about Mm -hmm. so far. Like, we've focused a lot on petitionary prayer, but we've mentioned adoration or... Confession or Thanksgiving, but lamentation is a way of talking to God that's totally different yeah. from any of those. Just categorically, the kind of the kind of thing that you're bringing to God in bringing grief to God is mm-hmm. is very different. I mean, a lot of that seems like it's tied, to, at
0: least in our own context, to not living with the kind of constant suffering
2: that a lot of people in the world live with. Mm-hmm. I think there's some of that. I think also we have a cultural problem with grief where we make our grief private. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, the Psalms, like you were mentioning how Jeremiah's lamentations are often so, I don't know, what's the right word, reflective of the Psalms or something like that. Uh, but the Psalms are like communal song, songs of worship, right? But, and a lot of the songs are songs, songs of lamentation, meant to be sung together as a community. I I think that's probably part of it. Is we don't have a communal language of grief like the Israelites did. So, uh, I guess maybe could you say some things about that you've learned about prayer in general, like what prayer can or should look like from studying the life of Jeremiah?
1: Yeah. So, um, I mean, there's kind of two categories. There's specifically how Jeremiah prays, and then like on a more general scale, like looking at his life and the kind of the theology that you learn from that book, what we can generally learn about prayer and stuff. Um, So specifically there's a few different categories in Jeremiah's prayers. One is that he inquires of God on behalf of others, so he's a prophet and people will occasionally send him to go pray and ask God for advice about what to do. There's a few different places where kings will do that Um, and then as I mentioned there's the story at the end where the The people who are left in Jerusalem after the Babylonians have taken over they are asking if they should stay in Jerusalem or go to Egypt um and so he does that and he hears he gets answers then he returns to the people so there's this there's that kind of prayer that's somewhat intercessory I guess and I don't know if that really applies in our lives I don't know whether we should assume that we should be inquiring of God in that way um might be something to explore like on an individual basis Mm -hmm. um and then, as we also mentioned, there's these Psalm, psalmy prayers where um, he's recounting God's deeds to God, praising him for them, and then he kind of, like, pivots off of that and asks for things or, um, you know, in some way lifts up a current event, you know. So he's like, you, you let us out of Egypt, and you did all these things in the past, so now you're doing this, or would you do this now? Um, and those kinds of prayers are really common in the Old Testament, um, where people are reminding both themselves and God about past deeds and I actually think that's something we could probably do more of um, I often forget to think that way um, like the reason I trust you in this situation is because I've, we've seen you do these things in the past so that's an important one I think mm-hmm. um, and then there are the poor his guts out prayers where he just lets it out and he you know whatever he's feeling which is usually not anything pleasant he cries out in some pretty uh, powerful ways. Yeah, so here in Jeremiah 20, verse 7, it says, O Lord, you deceived me, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name... His word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. I hear many whispering, terror on every side. Report him. Let's report him. All my friends are waiting for me to slip, saying perhaps he will be deceived. Then we will prevail over him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior, so my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will fail and be thoroughly disgraced. Their dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord Almighty, you who examine the righteous and probe the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for, you, for to you I have committed my cause. And he goes on, he sings praises. and Oh, and this is my favorite part. <laughs> In verse 14 it says, cursed, cursed be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought my father the news, who made him very glad, saying, A child is born to you, a son. And so that kind of thing, you know? like. Mm-hmm. When you're cursing the day you were born, <laughs> um, that's a pretty uh, from the heart kind of emotional expression. Um, so I think we can do that too, you know? Um, and then, of course, there's the, the lamenting prayers uh, where he does a similar thing but for the nation. Um, Whereas I said, you know, he's, he wishes his head were a spring of water so that he could cry enough for the, the nation that has been destroyed and then on a more general basis just kind of like theologically what we can understand from the book of jeremiah um you know there's that uh verse in isaiah that says his ways are above our ways and his thoughts are above our thoughts um so like you just kind of look at the way god is working in that whole story um he's working on a national level and individually in people's lives and accomplishing this, like, big historical thing that fits in with his call of Abraham and David and um, and also points to Jesus in some ways and, the, you know, eternity. There's all these huge things that we it's so hard for us to wrap our minds around. And so um, I think that we shouldn't expect prayer to be something that we can really understand and shouldn't think that we understand even what to pray for because... God's, um, his plans are so ornate and vast. Like, all we can do is just kind of, like, ask for a, a loaf of bread now and then. and
0: Kind of go back to what Patrick and I were talking about, about the grieving here, and this is kind of a similar, uh, What's almost can be taboo, and I think in the church, because we talk about being joyful, I think we can use that in the same way, where because we're supposed to be joyful, and we're supposed to rejoice always, well, that means that you aren't sad, or you aren't depressed, or you aren't... And, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to interpret this language other than basically, like, suicidal thoughts, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, I'd rather be dead. Like, like, why could you not have let me die and not even be born? That'd be better than this. Mm-hmm. So there is something about the fact that you know, this is included in Scripture, right, as, like, a very real experience of one of God's prophets wrestling with God and this reality of his suffering... I think there's a comfort in that, that we can go to God right, with those yeah. kinds of things um, and go to one another with those kinds of things. And so things like depression or suicidal thoughts or things that can be sometimes stigmatized or can be kind of considered taboo because, well, you're not really supposed to feel that way. It's like, no, like, this is very much, this is a reality. Mm-hmm. People do feel this way. And so to be able to feel free to bring that to God.
1: And that's kind of um, exactly it, like coming to God in the in the complexity of his character where he's um he can be both the source of our affliction in a way and the source of our comfort uh you know i'm pretty sure it's also in isaiah where he says he heals the wounds that he himself inflicted um and so you know jeremiah turned to god for comfort even though he knew very well that god was the very one who ordained this suffering he told him Mm -hmm. in chapter one that people are going to reject him all the time but i'm going to protect you and um so Jeremiah has some kind of understanding of that, and he can come to God with the, those burdens, and just be really honest. Um, and he even calls God his his comforter uh, in a few places. So, so yeah, just coming to God in His bigness. <laughs> He's he can be all these things. He can be this like judge and father. He can love us and discipline us. Um, And so, yeah, to just kind of meditate on that as you're praying is, I think, important. To not necessarily try to, like, dissect what prayer is in a logical, scientific way all the time, but um, just to experience it in that way. One other point is, I feel like we need to reject, like, the quasi-prosperity gospel that I think a lot of American Christians have, even if they aren't prosperity gospel people, where, like, we understand that maybe God doesn't want us to be, like, financially rich, but we do th- seem to think he wants us to be happy and healthy. Um, and, uh, there, uh like, if you look at Jeremiah's life, Jeremiah was, like, super faithful. <laughs> and so few things went his way. Um, mm-hmm. And yet he's doing exactly what God ordained for him to do. Um, you know, there's also, like, I think about Romans 8.28 and Jeremiah 29.11, so 8.28, mm-hmm. Jeremiah... Romans eight twenty eight is um, what is that verse?
2: You said Romans, Romans eight twenty eight. Yeah,
1: it's a uh, overused. Uh, yeah, and we know that for right.
2: those uh, for who love. love God, all things work together for good. Yeah, for those who are called according to His purpose.
1: So people often quote Romans eight twenty eight like to make you feel like you mm-hmm. should feel better in your situation because God is going to make it work for good. Um, but they forget that the next verses are about sanctification and being like. Jesus, doesn't it say he's there to conform us to His image or something? Yeah, His likeness. For those
2: whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Yeah, and Who was crucified right. on, on the cross. <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> <laughs>
0: like if anybody was in the center of the will of God, right. it was Jesus. Yeah. Look how that
1: turned out. Yeah. So yeah, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven is also often misused. That's the verse where he says, "I, I have a." God, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you, or something along those lines. Give you a hope and a future. And yeah, people always treat that like God wants you to have the career you want and the 2.5 kids and three-bedroom house or whatever. And um, if you look at that letter in context, what Jeremiah was writing there is it's a letter to exiles who he's telling, you're going to be an exile for a long time, get used to it. Like, you're you're going to have to sit under the darkness of this punishment that has come upon you. I love,
0: if you drop down to verse 17, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them, like, vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. (laughs) So, that's the plans that the Lord has. (laughs) right.
1: So, I guess my my point in bringing that up is just, like, how we approach prayer changes when you... view God that way, right? Um, you know, we've been talking about petitionary prayer and, like, healing and things like that. And God doesn't always make the road safe and easy for us. He can. Um,
2: yeah, so this is... It, co- it goes back to the first episode where we were talking about this idea that, pe- that you might have about God being a utility machine mm-hmm. and having being compelled by God's nature to bring about the best possible scenario... And uh, we talked about some reasons you might think that maybe there is no best possible scenario. Maybe there's a, there are a bunch of ties for what's the best. Or maybe there's no single best because there's an infinite series of better scenarios and God just picks one that's good enough. Maybe that's the kind of world we're living in, is a one where God picks a very good scenario. But what that involves is a lot of suffering for our growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I take that to be the kind of suggestion you're offering. Yeah,
1: and also, thinking about time frame, <laughs> you know, for 70 years, these people are going to live in this very unideal situation, but there's an eternal, or even if you just look at it in terms of the history of Israel, there's a point to it that is much bigger than, like, the suffering of one person or a town or even the nation, you know? Yeah. So... I think we need to get get our heads out of our, you know, I just, I want this job or I want, you know, I need this car. I want to get over this cold quickly type of mentality um, and realize that sometimes it's a long slog and nothing goes your way. But you, in the end, something bigger for God's kingdom is accomplished. And I think about this a lot with, I have, I struggle with, or I live with chronic pain and over the years, I've had lots of people pray for me. Like when I, when, Whenever people offer to pray for me, they always ask for the pain to go away. And I'm, every single time, I'm like a little uncomfortable about that. Because it's like, yeah, it would be nice to not have to deal with that anymore. But from my understanding of Scripture, I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily the main thing I should be asking for. Mm. But there's a lot of, you can learn a lot, you know, bigger picture stuff, I guess is what my point.
2: That's really helpful. Here's one point that stood out to me about Jeremiah's life of prayer, is that God told Jeremiah not to pray petitionary prayers for the Israelites because God had made up his mind about what he was going to do about the Israelites. And God also told Jeremiah, here's what I'm going to do with your life. So in very large ways, Jeremiah had petitionary prayer kind of sort of removed from his prayer life. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There are probably times where you see him pray petitionary prayers, but to a much greater degree than any of us, God just kind of settled. Here's how your life's going to go, and here's how the life of your people is going to go. You don't have a whole lot to pray for in -hmm. terms of petitions. But, man, he had a really rich prayer life. And uh, so it sort of shows by example that even if you didn't have a lot to pray for in terms of petitions. Amen. Amen. Okay, so thanks for joining us for that episode of MHU's podcast series, Does Prayer Work? And next time we'll be doing a little bit more of the same, looking at the life of Paul and what we can learn about prayer from the letters of Paul. Join us next time.